then unless the university had a need for it or the football team had a bunch of guys who wanted to subscribe to that because they want all you can eat. But otherwise, I don't. I think that that will stay on campus and largely serve mostly freshmen, sometimes sophomores, and then they'll move off campus and then they'll go buy their own food and make their bologna sandwiches. Welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees, and I want to wish everyone a happy New Year's. I hope your holiday season was filled with happiness, and hopefully you got some rest as well. I'm excited for 2023. Leasing here in the U.S. is off to a strong start. Canada seems to be doing well. Europe is facing some issues. The issues are are good for student accommodation companies, but Europe and and specifically the UK, they're facing increasing population among the Gen Z demographic. And you compound that with the economic conditions and and just, it just, it's making it for an unsuitable environment for private development. And the UK is really in crisis mode right now to figure out how they're going to house students, even for this upcoming fall. I think the U.S. will end up benefiting from that because, you know, as the U.K. will likely have to cap the number of international students that they will take in this next year. So those students will likely find themselves in the U.S. and Canada and Australia. And yeah, let's talk about Australia for a second. There's been a huge drop off this past year with their domestic enrollment. In large part, it's due to so many jobs being available post-pandemic. They had a huge swell of domestic enrollment during the pandemic, but the census data from this past summer is really showing that they've lost all of those gains. And that's really just due to the labor market is providing an irresistible alternative to academic study. So that's what's going on in Australia. So we'll we'll see how all this plays out over the next eight months, nine months. I'm excited to see it. And and of course, tune in here to the Student Housing Insight podcast to catch up on how it's evolving around the world. I've been amazed at how this, this podcast has actually really taken off, not just in the US, but specifically in the UK and Australia as well. So for those listeners in those countries, send me an email. Let me know if there's other topics you would like for us to discuss. You can do that at Wes at studenthousinginsight.com. I'll also put a link to it in the show notes. Well, now that we've been around the world, let's, uh, let's get into our interview for this episode. This is another installment of our profile series where I sit down with an industry leader that has helped form the current state of the industry or sometimes it's a leader that I think will have a huge impact on how the industry evolves. Today's guest fits both of those profiles. Fred Pierce is the founder and CEO of Pierce Education Properties based in San Diego. Fred has been involved in student housing since the mid-90s and really shaped a lot of the development in student housing over the past two and a half decades. Obviously, I've known Fred's name throughout my career, but I, I wasn't aware of his story and how he got started. I, I knew there was a tight relationship with San Diego State, where he graduated from, 
but I, I didn't realize how that relationship formed and how that also launched his career in student housing. Additionally, Fred has played an important part of getting institutional capital excited about the student housing space. And he's got an interesting story behind that. Pierce Properties sold off a huge part of their portfolio in 2021, but Fred is not done. And that's why I say Fred is going to be someone who really impacts what the next 20 years of student housing looks like. So let's get to the interview. Here's my discussion with Fred Pierce. Fred, welcome to the podcast. Yes, welcome. It's good to finally connect with you. I've seen you at conferences over the years. We've exchanged some emails back and forth, but it's great to finally sit down with you and and kind of find out a little bit more about Pierce and, and your journey. So thanks for spending time with our audience. Yeah, and thanks for having me. So, you know, the first kind of question that I, I come out of the box with, uh, just to make sure that for our audience members who, who don't know the story behind Pierce, give us kind of just the origin story about where you grew up, how you got involved in student housing, and where things are headed to now. So briefly, we've lived all over the country, and I was born in Chicago and moved to Des Moines, Minneapolis, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and and then when my dad got transferred back to Toledo, Ohio, my senior year in high school, I made the choice to head south to San Diego and go to San Diego State, where I did my undergraduate studies and graduate studies at, at San Diego State. And, and that's really where the genesis of Pierce Education Properties was born, uh, was at San Diego State. Undergrad, I was a finance major. And I had an internship, a couple of internships, uh, but one was with a company called the Goodkin Group, which was a market research uh, firm specializing in real estate market research, doing market studies and feasibility studies and giving advice to landowners. And so when I was 21 and in that internship, I really got the bug of commercial real estate. And I, I decided at that point as a senior in college that my aspiration in life was going to be to own a commercial real estate company. And I didn't know at that point in time, it wasn't so specified that I didn't know if we'd be developers or owners of income property, as well as what niche, what sector of commercial real estate could have been hotels or office buildings or shopping centers, apartments. And I got in that consulting business and I took that job that they offered me after I graduated. And I stayed in consulting for about 10 years with a phenomenal learning curve. I just worked on giant projects all over the country, ultimately all over the world. And I was still looking for that big break to be able to have uh, and found my own real estate company. And well, about 10 years into consulting, that actually then finally happened. And one of my former consulting projects was a study and recommendations as to what to do with all the land surrounding my alma mater, San Diego State. And so the scope ended up being 131 acres of land that was largely owned by private property owners, but was really the front door to the university. And so the university wanted to control that land, buy as much of it as possible, and then have it redeveloped. And after a couple of other really successful high-profile real estate developers were unable to get the project going, 
they couldn't get it off the ground. They told the university they thought their plans were infeasible. Well, the university came back to me and said, Fred, these really smart developers have told you that this is an infeasible project. What do you have to say for yourself? And I said, (laughs) well, how about this? I believe it's feasible as proposed. How about if I quit my job, start a company, and you make me the developer of this 5 million square foot project? And at this point in my life, I had been a consultant for 10 years. The only thing I'd done as a principal, as an owner, was I built a tract of land right near San Diego State, and I built nine houses. It was a $2 million project. So that's a logical step to go from $2 million project to a $5 billion project. <laughs> and so the university, through its foundation, said, well, Fred, maybe not so fast. I'll tell you what, why don't you come work for us uh, as a consultant and write the business plan to show us how you're going to get this under construction. And then if we buy that plan, maybe, maybe we'll hire you to implement it for us. So of course I had to quit my then current job to take on this consulting assignment, but I had a vision that this was going to be it. This was going to be the company that I'd always wanted to find, found, should I say. And so I quit my job. And I wrote the business plan. And 90 days later, they said, yep, we buy this. Uh, let's find a way to work together. And they uh, they offered me the contract where I was the outsourced developer. And for the next 10 plus years, uh, I built a resume and a track record by acquiring 25 of the 100 parcels in this area, launching and uh, building several phases of the development and building an institutional track record. And other universities were starting to come to me, seeing what we had done at San Diego State. So picture, graduated college in 1984, got hired by San Diego State, which is when I founded the predecessor to Pierce Education Properties in 1995. And then fast forward to 2006, opportunities are coming my way, and I take the company national. Uh, I had to sever the relationship on that redevelopment project because that required me to spend 75% of my time on their project. And I couldn't have a national company and had my hands tied. So we, we parted ways and I took the company national. And since then, we've acquired $1.2 billion of purpose-built student apartments, built several projects, have two more student apartment complexes under construction at San Diego State. And that's really, that's the genesis of it. And uh, we built a, you know, a really, really successful company and currently have 150 employees and and own a portfolio of student apartments nationwide. So, I mean, that's a fantastic story. And and the thing that kind of first comes to my mind that I want to ask you is, from that first relationship with San Diego State to working with other universities, because I've been around you enough to know that you've got a passion for helping out the universities and in a lot of ways can speak that language that the universities speak. Has that single relationship with San Diego State, has that always kind of been the same way that you've entered these other projects across the country or has, has that been different? So I had a business plan when I founded the company in 1995, and it was like a three-legged stool as to what I thought it was going to take to have a national platform. So one was the track record, right? The experience of, of doing university real estate and student housing, 
the San Diego State Redevelopment Project gave me that opportunity to build that track mm-hmm. record. So that took care of itself over 10 years or so. The second was building and expanding my university relationships. And I had an opportunity to and was appointed to the board of trustees of the California State University System. And boom, with that uh, and attending board meetings every other month, all presidents of all of the 23 CSU campuses attend those trustees meetings. And so not only did I learn a ton by being on that board, but that also built expertise on the university side, on the academic side, on the campus planning and building and grounds on finance and how universities finance things. And by the way, many of those university presidents in CSU campuses went on and took other university presidencies all around the country. So I had this relationship and growing relationship as well as credibility, right? Because being on a board as prominent as the Cal State Board of Trustees has credibility to university administrators all over the country. So that sort of checked the box of university expertise beyond just the real estate development side, but put yourself on the other side of the equation. You're now the governing board. And so that helped. And then the third is that real estate is very capital intensive. And so, you know, I was going to need to be able to identify and raise capital. So another opportunity happened where I was at one point on the young alumni board of San Diego State. And one of the colleagues of mine on that board gave me a call one day and he says, hi, Fred, this is John. And um, I don't know if you knew, but I'm now the appointment secretary to the mayor of the city of San Diego. And we have an opening on the pension fund board of trustees of the city. And the city has an allocation of 10% of its fund into real estate. And we want some real estate expertise on the pension fund board. Would you be willing to accept an appointment by the mayor and city council to serve on our pension fund? Absolutely. And I said, well, that's very flattering and we'd be happy to do that. And day one on the board, of course, that I get appointed chairman of the real estate investment committee. And so then I'm working, you know, literally as a plan sponsor with investment advisors and investment managers who are managing our real estate portfolio. Ultimately, that resulted in me also being appointed to the the advisory fund board at Invesco for their first real estate fund. So then I'm even closer to what's going on with one of our investment managers. So I I built relationships that ultimately have led to the access of institutional capital from our company from day one. So most companies that come into a space like student housing start with friends and family capital. Then they maybe go to country club capital, which is the friends of the friends and family. You know, maybe they end up in a family office, which is a, you know, a wealthy individual who hires their own investment staff. And then maybe you get to the institutional world of life insurance companies and investment advisors and what have you. And the nirvana at the end of the day is getting right to the source, right? Because even investment managers are managing somebody else's money. But if it is the pension fund or the life company or the foundation, it's their money. And we started institutional from day one. Our first deal was a $130 million acquisition with 50 million of equity from Fidelity Investments. And from that day on going forward, we've been institutionally funded. So those three legs to the stool, university relationships, uh, uh, capital access, 
and an experience base. Yeah. So that's what we did. And yes, that experience base at San Diego State certainly gave us the expertise and the experience and the credibility to be able to do things in other places. Right. Now, as long as I've known Pierce Education, you guys have always self-managed. Was there a time when you guys didn't self-manage? When we went national, so we went national in 2006, made our first acquisition in uh, January of 2007. And at that point, we didn't have the management side track record that we did on the development side. And so uh, originally, uh, a third-party property manager was brought in on that very first project. And it became clear to our partner about a year into the management of that situation that we were doing the heavy lifting more so than the property manager. And they made the change and they brought us in and allowed us to then become the property manager. And we've been operating our own properties ever since. So we've never had to go to a third party, but for that very first deal and only for a very short period of time. So what's what were some of the, those early lessons as you were starting out a, a new management company that maybe you didn't think about beforehand? What we did is, and I did this across the platform and the foundation of the company was I brought in expertise. So I brought in somebody who'd managed tens of thousands of beds of student housing around the country. He used to work for what was Allen and O'Hara that became Education Realty Trust. It's one of their senior operations people. So from day one, when we got that, he became our point person. And ever since, we've continued to hire really, really experienced people. And so the lessons had been learned by those people. And candidly, at the beginning, I sort of used my investment acumen and my relationships to be able to start building a pipeline of student apartments to acquire, but I had an operating team that knows how to operate things. I've learned a lot personally in that time frame of the last 17 years or so, but the bottom line is that I still rely on my operating people to be the operators, yeah. and I, I'm i fairly hands-off in that regard. Yeah. We've got a, a kind of a, a common thread with Jasmine Zelenko, who helps lead up your property management operations and was working with her on site back at junior college in Illinois years and years and years ago. And um, to see her maturation in this industry and to see what she's, how she's grown with you guys over the past couple of years has been incredibly impressive. So I know you're in, in good hands there with both her and Chris Ann Kaiser. The experience that you've got from that side, I think, lends itself pretty well to being able to now see kind of in the future to this industry, some of the things that may be challenging to it. So that's my next question. What are some of the biggest challenges you see facing the student housing industry in you know the next five, maybe 10 years? I would say the, the top of the list is qualified personnel because we, we look like apartments. We are apartments, but we don't operate like apartments. Yeah. And, you know, so if you were to, to pluck somebody from the conventional side, they will have a learning curve in student housing. So we're on the Residential Property Management Board at the University of Georgia, and both I and KC are participating in that, but KC generally rep- represents us there. We've also been involved with a similar program at Bowling Green State University. 
So first, second, and third, I would say challenges, you know, going forward is having a trained, uh, educated, capable workforce. And it goes clearly all the way down, you know, matter of fact, importantly, at the property level where we need everything from leasing personnel to the operations side of the business. We need, you know, experienced people in student housing. We did a shop talk webinar last month for in November regarding just the recruitment process and and what's happening from a personnel standpoint. And that is the one thing across all of multifamily, but I think especially in student housing that has a lot of people concerned right now, especially on the maintenance side. There's so much that as a country, we have not put a good focus on the trades and manual labor. <laughs> and, and I think that has is starting to really hurt us with, when it comes to recruiting and bringing up folks on the facility side. And it's really starting to hurt now because those guys can go out and find construction jobs or go to some of the really nice communities that are getting some of the top rents in, in the market and they can make way more money you know, than they typically can at a you know, an off-campus student property. So yeah, I agree with you on that. Any other challenges you see? Those are the primary ones. And and the other side would be market selection. The demographics in student housing are not necessarily very well understood at a macroeconomic level, but it's become clear to us that where you want to be is at strong, stable, or growing universities, right? And so the segments of higher education are very different and face very different outlooks. By way of example, enrollment is being challenged right now at community colleges all over the country, whereas go to the other end of the spectrum and very large public universities that play Division One football in the Power Five conferences have an almost insatiable demand for admissions. Yeah. I mean, even in my backyard at San Diego State last year had 111,000 applications and only the capacity to enroll 10,000 students that year. So they can be very selective. And when you can be selective, it's easy to manage enrollment because you can set your enrollment kind of anywhere you want it to be. And so I, I do think that in the decade of the 2000s, you could be at almost any university because enrollment grew by 38% over the decade of the 2000s. Well, now the outlook over the next you know half a dozen years is only about 300,000 more students on a base of 20 million. However, all that enrollment growth, matter of fact, there's going to be some enrollment losses at some places like community colleges and that tier three universities. And then the tier one universities that I just mentioned, they're going to be growing. So it's market selection, which maybe we had the benefit in student housing in that decade of the 2000s that you were at any public university, you were probably good to go. Yeah. Things were going well. Now, just like every kind of commercial real estate, you want to select your markets, right? And there's some that are good and some that are not so good. So we've got some other proprietary criteria that we use, but some of those others are what I what I just shared. And, and if we're at a good, strong, growing university with great retention, with a large number of applications, then the outlook is really, really bright. And, and so market selection becomes a, a really important criteria. Well, I'm interested in your thoughts on something that I've been observing because we saw and continue to see a, a population decrease coming. I think the, the real front end of that's supposed to happen in 2025. And, and we saw everybody in the university 
world. Talk about that that decline coming up and how they were going to pivot in order to you know make sure that their institutions continued to get the same amount of revenue and didn't lose their foothold. And I think that was really accelerated by the pandemic because all of a sudden some of these universities that had really large international students, they pretty much lost that overnight when it came to 2020, fall of 2020. And I think part of what they were gearing up for, you know, looking at 2025 is, hey, we're going to have to bring in more in-state students. And, you know, as well as I do, it takes five in-state students to replace the revenue from one international student, typically. Now we've got international rebounding back, as we expected. We've got this cohort of in-state students that have caused, you know, major strain on specifically the housing part of it. I mean, you know, you look at Knoxville, Tennessee this past year and the day that they, the property started kicking off their pre-leasing, they had kids lined up on the sidewalks sleeping in tents the night before. And at the same time, to try to get into Knoxville right now and develop something, it's going to be another three years off before that project's delivered. I'm kind of wondering, what do you see happening in the short term from a development standpoint as universities are trying to understand how that enrollment wave is going to equal out? Do you think developers are going to be pretty hot and heavy to get into those markets? Or do you think the capital is going to keep them from from going after those tier one markets in the next couple of years? I think the issue is barriers to entry and timing to entitlement and construction. So it's simply not something that can pivot so that if you've got demand for housing bursting at the seams like you do in California, mm-hmm. it's really, really a concern in California uh, and several several other growth markets. But there is no short-term solution because it takes time to deliver and in those tier one universities, by and large, as developers have been looking at land that's pedestrian for the most part, yeah. if there is land, it's largely in drive locations, yeah. a mile or two miles from campus. And by the way, there's still plenty of demand for product in those locations. But again, the timing isn't going to happen quickly. So in the interim, really the only way to flex both up and down has been on the universities themselves because it's years out to develop, deliver new inventory. So what you've seen, I mean, if you can picture this, I'll use San Diego state because it's in my backyard, but before the pandemic, their inventory of housing was 7,500 beds and it was full. And then the pandemic happened and they had a series, I think it was six of their residence halls that had gang bathrooms at the end of the hallways. And they just couldn't find a way to socially distance and manage those in that environment. And they went from 7,500 all the way down to 2,100 beds that next year. So picture that would have been in the spring of 2021, all the way down to to 2100 and now flex back up. And for this upcoming year, they're back and they've got 8,000 signed up for housing contracts. And so they've secured off-campus master leases (laughs) and they've returned to doubling up some instances tripling up. And that's the thing a university can do. If the demand is there, they can double up, they can triple up. And I think that people have learned, uh, while they might've been a little afraid of that during COVID and they did the old de-densification shuffle, what they've found is that college students 
didn't get very sick. So if they did get the coronavirus, they were sequestered, they recovered quickly, and they didn't get very sick. And so I think there's less concern in residence halls these days across America of doubling up or tripling up. And that it may not be their preference, but that's what most universities will do until the new supply off campus can catch up to the, to the demand. I think it's on the off-campus providers to really work with their university administrators and, and understanding what that plan is, because that's a perfect opportunity to kind of, you know, to really find out what it is that, what their needs are going to be that potentially that property, that off-campus property is going to be able to help them with. Well, Fred, the majority of our audience are site-level managers and regional managers, and a lot of the folks that are at the site level, they may have been in this business for five to eight years, a lot of times straight out of college. And they're kind of looking at it now as, okay, is this going to be a long-term career for me? Or is this going to be something that's just a stepping stone to you know, move into some other industry? For those that are, that are really passionate about this industry and want to make this a career, what's some advice that you would give them on helping them take those next steps to either going offsite or going into the development side or to an asset management side. Just curious your thoughts on that. I've got a couple of thoughts. So one would be the more broad of an experience base an on-site person can get, the more likely it is that they can move up the ranks in student housing. By way of example, maybe they start as a community assistant. While they're a student, they decide, I'm going to give a run at this for my career, at least you know once I graduate. And then maybe they become a leasing professional. But there's also other things in operations, right, that you can get involved with on site that could help you understand better what it takes holistically to run the whole property. And the same thing, if you've got people in a finance or accounting, if they've got the acumen and can they you know, move over and be in the leasing side of the shop or the marketing side of the shop, then they're more well-rounded. Mm-hmm. And then you, know, you can see them escalating to become a community manager, right? Who needs to understand all the elements. They'll probably have a leasing a marketing director doing the primary you know, marketing and leasing oversight, but having, uh, we call them, used to call them executive director, now community manager, you know, someone running the properties, the top person on property, if they've had some experience in marketing, some in accounting and collections, some in operations, boy, they're they're a much more attractive candidate to be able to move up. It's it's almost like the, the hospitality model where when they get a new employee or a management trainee, they force them to work in all aspects, right, of the operation. And that's that could be everything from the janitorial to being in in leasing and, and, and sales for the hotel to being in the restaurant or the convention operation. So they, they move their people around to both let them see which part of the business they like and also let them have an, a rounded experience base, which makes them more qualified to move up the chain. The, the other thing I'd say is think about continuing education. That's everything from can you get your employer to send you and allow you to go to the NAA conference, which is very operations focused, 
Are, is there a university in your area? And I had mentioned Bowling Green and I had been, mentioned Georgia that has some continuing education that would sharpen your pencil, maybe even an Excel course, right? Where you can learn how to run spread and work spreadsheets. If you want to ultimately get into asset management, you're going to need to know how to have that skill. So I think continuing education and I think getting broad-based experience on property would be, I think, two of two of my highest recommendations. Gotcha. gotcha. Something you mentioned there is Brought up another question I wanted to ask you, going back to, to the development of things. A lot of your projects have been in tight association with the universities. The need for food services, do you think that's something that's going to end up becoming more of an off-campus thing? Or do you think that's something that's better for the on-campus administrators to handle? <laughs> so I do not think that's going to be a trend off campus, uh, unless you are in a really unique location. And even then, we've got one under construction right now. It's called Topaz. It's right at the front door. I mean, it's one parcel removed from the actual entry to the university. So it's right there. And so it is a compelling retail location. But what we've got is 10,000 square feet of ground level retail and then student apartments above. But it's not food service as you'd envision, you know, on the campus, right? You don't buy a meal plan or even having a, you know, a, a card that you debit for, you know, a certain amount per meal and, and what have you. No, I mean, we've got a lease with McDonald's and, and then we got an ice cream place and we got Dunkin' Donuts and we've got um, Jimmy John's and a Boba tea place. It's like you'd see in most uh, pedestrian locations next to the university, you know, the kind of tenants you'd want. And and the other thing I'd say is because meal programs that are offered on campus have never been better. The food is good and it's diverse and yeah. you got good food service operators that make that desirable. However, it's also expensive. Yeah. And this is something that hasn't changed in the last 30 years is that when students move off campus, then they have a budget. And frankly, more of their budget probably goes to beer than it goes to food. And, you know, and so they're, they're still buying top ramen and frozen burritos, you know, because they can buy them cheap, right? And then they save the, their discretionary money for other things other than food. And so if you were to offer a meal program off campus, then unless the university had a need for it or the football team had a bunch of guys who wanted to subscribe to that because they want all you can eat or what have you. Yeah. But otherwise, I don't. I think that that will stay on campus and largely serve mostly freshmen, sometimes sophomores, and then they'll move off campus and then they'll go buy their own food and make their bologna sandwiches. Let's talk about that affordability component of it because it's a growing conversation within student housing. You're in California, so I know that you're hearing a lot of it. What is the solution to that? Is it P3? Is it something else that's more innovative that developers have got to start considering? Any thoughts on that? So it's interesting. The student housing industry has matured a lot over the last two decades. And what's interesting is the inventory, the purpose-built inventory that was built in the decade of the 2000s, let's mm -hmm. call it from 2000 to 2010, are largely drive properties, one to two miles from campus, yeah. that when they were built, they were amenities on steroids. This is where all the sand volleyball courts and basketball courts and, and resort pools and, <laughs> yeah, and, and tanning salons and what, that stuff all happened. But you had to go a little bit from campus to do that. And in the next decade, the majority of construction moved to pedestrian areas. Yeah. 
took longer to get, do site assemblage and it was more expensive. They've gone vertical. And so that's much more expensive housing. So guess what? Generation one of purpose-built student housing is now very affordable. And we've got properties in those locations at $500 per bed per month. Whereas something new that's mid-rise is clearly going to be over $1,000 a month. And there was a lot built in the 2000s. So what's happened is purpose-built student housing now, as the industry defines it, has a much broader price point. Mm -hmm. So it can really be an affordable solution. And it's just, you might be in a little different location. And candidly, To think you're pedestrian and just right across the street from the campus is to some extent a misnomer when you've got a thousand acre or more campus because it still may be a half an hour to walk to get to your class when you're pedestrian and when you're a drive property that's a mile away and we've got a shuttle service and we can drop you at five different locations to get you close to your classroom and get you there in 15 minutes. So in fact, the actual transportation time from property to your classroom can be shorter and quicker, you know, in a drive property than necessarily in a pedestrian property. But, you know, the pedestrian properties in some instances seem like they're in the hub of all the activity. And no matter what, they're going to be more expensive because they just cost so much to build. So I think they're the affordable solution is that inventory. Mm -hmm. There's also an opportunity for affordability in some locations if the property is conducive to converting conventionally operated multifamily into student housing. And we've done that in numerous instances where we're basically converting it and leasing it by the bed. Over time, that transitions the resident base from probably being young professionals to being predominantly or exclusively student. It's probably a property with a little bit more vintage on it where the rents were are not super top of the market like the brand new mid-rise student housing you know, near yeah. campuses. So I think there's both strategies. And the conversion doesn't work everywhere. And sometimes the unit mix isn't all that susceptible or opportunistic to convert it, but where you can find it, that can work very well. Otherwise, I'd say find those other locations. That's how you'll get more affordable student housing. Yeah. I, I think that's a good point also for, because I do know there's a couple of transportation folks that, that listen to the podcast. And I think that's a good argument also for the university to really be focused on expanding any type of transportation service that they're currently providing because the students that can't afford to be in the core area of campus that are going to go further out, well, then there's the issue of a parking pass, having a car, all those expenses. I think that's somewhere where not just the university, sometimes the university and whatever municipality is handling the transportation in that area, but that just shows that that's even more of a key area to focus on in, in the coming years. So speaking of the coming years, anything on the horizon for peers or for you personally over the next 12 months that you want to share? Well, I mean, most certainly we've got the two projects under construction at San Diego State, and that's a place that is just screaming for housing, and they're in incredible locations. So one will deliver this next fall of 23. It's 169 beds. And then we've got one the next year that's 301 beds that will be fall of 24. So we'll be focusing on the lease up on those and delivery of those projects at SDSU. One's Topaz, the other one's College View. And then we're back on an acquisitions uh, initiative. Mm -hmm. We disposed of 
approximately 10,000 beds of student housing in 2021, a great year to dispose of yeah. assets when you look at, in the rearview mirror. And now we're back and we think there's a lot of opportunities in this in, environment now where you've got a motivated seller. And if you've got captive capital that's able to transact and willing to transact, even in this interest rate environment, and we think that value add opportunities where most of the value you create was not from positive leverage. That helped, you know, in other words, having your cost of debt, your interest rate be lower than your cap rate. That certainly helped, but it wasn't the main premise. The premise is the business plan with the property. And now what we're seeing is properties are available and they're less expensive than they were in 2021. So there's going to be some good buy side opportunities that's largely being driven by the interest rate environment. And we believe that the interest rate environment and the lending environment will only be like it is now for a short period of time. And if you look at the interest rate experts, almost all of them are predicting a recession in the US economy. Student housing is recession resistant, so that doesn't hurt student housing, but that should be the trigger for interest rates to start coming down sometime in the third or fourth quarter of 2023. And if you've got short-term financing, your business plan is a two or three year turnaround. Okay, you pay more in interest because you had to originate it in the middle of this environment, but you can calculate what that is. You've probably got enough of a price discount to make up for the interest expense. Your business plan is to either do renovations and get higher rents, or it's to take a property that's more lowly occupied and get it fully occupied. And that's where your big lift is, right? So if you can get the price offset to interest rates, it's a good time to do value add. And there seems to be growing uh, demand for student housing, especially at tier one universities. Gotcha. So that's our plan. We're looking forward. And by the way, in this year, in the middle of what's been going on, we've already acquired four properties. They're all value add plays, uh, one at Georgia, two at Clemson, one at Iowa State. And we're looking forward to more. So we'll be on a, a growth trajectory. That's for sure. Great, great. Well, Fred, I really appreciate the time that you've been able to spend with our audience and and letting them know a little bit about the history of Pierce and, and where you guys are are headed and some of the life experiences that that you and your team have had. I really appreciate that. Hey, there was one other question I wanted to ask, just maybe to get an update on. I remember maybe four or five years ago, NMHC, you were very instrumental in launching a fund, a, a nonprofit. I'm not exactly sure what it was, how it was structured, but to help with student housing and creating, try to get more data and some other initiatives. Is that still going on today or is that what's? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, you know, we've got an endowment that we've created. I think it's uh, 600,000 plus or minus. Yeah. We've already completed a series of research studies. I, I think we're in the midst of our fourth study that's being funded from the endowment, by the way, for other student housing providers who have not contributed to the endowment. It's a benefit to the entire industry if, yeah. if you do, because there's not as much student housing research data out there as there is, for example, in multifamily. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and investors love data, right? They like to, to support a investment thesis with, with hard numbers. So we continue, I continue to chair the NMHC student housing research advisory board. It's a research fund advisory board. We continue to raise money. And as a matter of fact, we just had 
a committee call in the last month uh, where we were discussing what the next research project was going to be yeah. and what data we can help provide to the industry that isn't otherwise coming about. So appreciate you asking about that. But yeah. it's, it's, and it's more important, especially since ACC went private, right? Because I mean, then there, yeah. there was public companies in the space where the Wall Street analysts were producing research reports and studying the stocks and, and opining upon what they thought about it. That doesn't exist with everything being private it now. So we need the research more than ever. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. I love the benchmark study that they're coming out with, uh, I guess, every couple of years on the expense side that for as a consultant, that has been huge for me. And, uh, you know, I always make sure that if I'm not at the conference where they give it out, I end up purchasing it later. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I love the word that they're putting out. Well, again, Fred, thanks so much. I know you've got a busy schedule this week leading up to Christmas and New Year's, and I just uh, appreciate you spending the time with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Take care. Take care. Again, a big thanks to Fred for giving us his time and, and sharing his story. I love doing this this profile series and, and being able to not only hear these stories myself, but also really kind of put it out there on the internet as a history lesson in a lot of ways of what's happening within our industry and how it has formed so uh, things to, to not only Fred, but everyone this past year that has been part of that profile series. Well, guys, that does it for this episode. I do want to remind you about our monthly webinar called Shop Talk. We're tackling a lot of timely and relative topics each month. And Shop Talk is something you need to be plugged into, especially if you work on the operations side of the business. You can get more information and register to receive calendar invites at shoptalk.info. Again, that's shoptalk.info. You can also catch previous webinars and view those. We've done... I think since April, we've done one every month except in August. So there's a good library there already of Shop Talk webinars that you can go back and view. Again, thanks for listening. I hope this episode brought you value. If it did, please do me the favor of recommending it to a colleague or really promoting this episode on LinkedIn is a fabulous way to make sure that it gets in front of other people that are following you and that you are following within this industry. And there's not a better compliment that you can give me than to share that on LinkedIn. Well, take care, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.